Good morning, Oregon, and welcome to another week of Offbeat Oregon Stories. As ever, I am your host, Finn J.D. John, fj at offbeatoregon.com. And of course, it's a Monday, which means that instead of reading one of the archive columns from the past 14 years of Offbeat Oregon history, I'm going to be reading you a primary source document, something interesting pulled from the pages of Oregon history. This is the third and final part of the excerpt of J. Henry Brown's autobiography dealing with the crossing of the Oregon Trail in a train of emigrants from Missouri in the summer and fall of 1847. And this brings us to the end of the excerpt. As I mentioned in part one, there is more. There's about another ten more pages, but most of it is glowing descriptions of the Willamette Valley heavily laden with cliches about the Garden of Eden and stuff like that, along with a strong dose of that manifest destiny stuff about civilization arriving from the midst of barbarism and savagery. That's not the kind—I mean, that is the kind of thing that you will find in historical documents. But it's nothing that we need to burden ourselves with for fun, so I'm ending the reading here. If you'd like to take a look at the source document, it is 30 typewritten pages, double-spaced manuscript style, and we finished our reading on page 22. You will find it on the Library of Congress Works Progress Administration Oregon Folklore Studies Collection on the website. The link is wpa.org slash item slash WPALH 0 There was nothing of great interest transpired until we arrived Barlow's Gate. East end of the wagon road crossed the Cascade Mountains, passing near and south of Mount Hood. We arrived at this place about the 1st of October, and camped for the night preparatory to the attempt next morning. We had not had any rain up to this time, but by morning it came down very heavily, and continued until we emerged into the valley on the other side sixteen days afterward. The first day we passed what seemed to us an incredible number of dead stock, but it was merely the indications of the hecatombs of live property that had struggled so far to miserably perish through the combined influence of scarcity of grass, chilling rains, and heavy mud. The road was simply a ravine, nothing more, cut through a tremendous forest, very narrow, stumps so high the wagons could scarcely pass over them while the swamps and creeks, if bridged at all, were loose poles that would slide about, letting the team's legs through or the wagons down into the mud, causing delay, injury of stock, and decided peril of those who attempted to ride. The cold, insinuating rain and sleet was continuous. On the second day, our stock began to die rapidly, and we counted thirteen yoke that died the second night. The third day we arrived at the brink of the far-famed Laurel Hill, and it is now historic, with all the hills or mountains that we had heretofore encountered and surmounted, this was the most appalling. At least one-eighth of a mile down and remarkably steep, cut a portion of the way on the steep side of the mountains, overhanging a yawning abyss of unknown depth, the roadway which had been constructed only wide enough for a wagon to pass, with quite a stream of ice-cold water flowing down the same. We looked in dismay, and the cattle seemed to moan in distress. But others had descended, so must we. 
The first thing to be done was to unhitch all the teams except the wheel yoke and send them down first, also the women and children. Then cut small fir branches about six inches in diameter, cutting the branches off, leaving them about a foot long on the trunk. Chain them top first to the kind of axle of each wagon. Rough lock both wheels, i.e. with that knot of the chain will rest on the ground where the wheel first comes into contact, making the greatest amount of resistance. Then stock, the yoke of the oxen on the tongue, are merely to guide the wagon. Then, about halfway down, the road made a short turn. The water had cut away the side of the road so much that it was so steep as to be impossible for a wagon to make the turn without going over into the canyon below. One wagon had gone over that day, as a notice on a stick in the bank said, and the undoubted signs were there. The men passed ropes over the wagons to the lower side, the lower end around the trees above the road, and slackened away as required by the roar, and hauled tight on the front ropes as the wagon passed around the point where the road was safe. This was called snubbing, but not intended as it is generally understood to mean a treating with contempt. But we succeeded in passing the whole train over this place and down the hill by the time it was dark. This particular hill was considered to be the worst part of our journey of 2,000 or more miles. When we arrived at Summit or Mount Hood Prairie, we encountered a terrific snowstorm, but fortunately its fury abated or we would have perished before morning. That night about 500 head of stock perished, as there were several trains camped at the same place. It was decided to leave all the wagons but three and return for our goods and household fixtures with pack animals one of my uncles to be left in charge. While the men were making preparations that day, all of the women and children who were able turned out to pick what was called mountain huckleberries, whortberries, which grew in great abundance on bushes about three feet high. Gallons were thus secured, flour sacks scraped as we were about out of that necessary article, and several large puddings were baked in our different Dutch iron ovens. The next day our toilsome journey was resumed and was not varied on continued disasters accompanied all those traveling beneath the weeping clouds of the Cascade Mountains. Our stock died every day, all along on either side and in the road lay dead the faithful oxen in their yokes, horses and mules in harness, while sheep lay scattered around, but not so large a percentage of the latter. The wagon wheels crushed to carcasses as they unfeelingly rolled over them. On the sixteenth day, we arrived in the valley at the Fosters, an insatiable land shark who settled there to acquire a competence out of other people's necessity and misery, charging ten times the value for vegetables that he knew well they were compelled to purchase. One man, who in later years I became well acquainted with and who had acquired a large fortune, lost all of his stock but one yoke of oxen. He packed one with such things as he could— mounted with his wife, a boy two years old, and an infant child upon the other, abandoning everything else, struck out for the valley. He overtook us at Foster's, and in that condition, we took his wife and children into one of our wagons for the rest of the journey. When it was decided to leave the train at Mount Hood Prairie, my grandfather went on to the valley to look up his two brothers who had come the year before, who had, he found had settled on Silver Creek near where Silverton now stands. They, not knowing that he was expecting to emigrate, did not go out to meet us, but the next day hired Indians and sixty pack ponies and started after the goods, and in due time arrived with them in good condition. About the middle of October 1847, we arrived in Salem, 
thus finishing our long journey of over 2,000 miles across the American continent. Salem at that time was a missionary town. That is, it had been laid out in short time previously by the missionary board and was the seat of Protestant education and only contained three or four houses. My grandfather opened his store, the first ever there, and soon had a thriving business, taking for pay goods, the currency of the inhabitants, wheat at the value of one dollar per bushel. For groceries, he went to Oregon City, the then Emporium of Oregon, making most of his purchases of Dr. John McLaughlin. When that good old man was told he had brought his store across the plains, his astonishment knew no bounds. It seemed so incredible that for a time he was inclined to doubt the statement. That concludes part three of this three-part reading of the autobiography of J. Henry Wilson of Salem. Next Monday, we'll have you on to another WPA oral history interview, a short interview by writer Claire Warner Churchill with one of the more important women of old Portland history, Mrs. Anne Abernethy Starr. As I mentioned, there is more of Mr. Wilson's autobiography in the file, which you can find online in PDF form at the Library of Congress, loc.gov slash item slash WPALH 002000.